This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vicini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, it's our good friend, Adam Spinella. Coach Spins from over at The Box and One. You can find him over at The Box and One underscore on Twitter. Am I right, Adam? You're you're correct. And then you can also go find him at The Box and One on YouTube, where his scouting videos are just the absolute best. Uh, he is the best in the business at doing this. I think he's absolutely terrific. Uh, I've been wanting to have him on the show for a while. Adam, what's going on, man? It's good to see you. Yeah. What's up, Sam? And hello, Hoopaholics that are out there. Uh, thrilled to be here today. I've had a professional checklist for a number of years, right? Win a championship <laughs> as a coach, someday work for an NBA front office, and be a guest on the Game Theory podcast. So I get to right. put my first check mark in there, and I'm, I'm thrilled to be doing it here this evening. We can check uh, the easiest one of those by far, which is good, and by far the least uh, the least lucrative of the three. So, Adam, explain for the people like what your background is. Yeah, so I uh, I've been writing about or covering the NBA for about a decade, and back in 2017, I got into college coaching. Been a high school coach for a number of years before that. Made the decision I wanted to make the leap to college, and with that knew that you know, evaluating talent on the fly is a huge part of being an effective college coach, getting into seats, seeing prospects at these events, and being able to make snap judgments on them and see how they fit in your system. What better way for me to practice and prepare myself to thrive in that industry than to spend a lot more time diving into the NBA draft? So about 2017, 2018, that became a focus of a lot of my writing, uh, happened around the same time that guys like Schmitz and Gavoni and Draft Express kind of left the space a little bit more on YouTube. And I've tried to plug in there and fill that void. So a lot of scouting reports and, and in-depth breakdowns, but trying to have that cerebral eye as best as I can and, uh, and, and really enjoy, you know, seeing uh, and learning from where I've been wrong. I think that that's a, yeah. a often underrated part of this process is being okay with being wrong and learning from that and, and getting better in the future. So uh, now that we've been doing this for a few years, feel pretty confident that we're starting to not make as many mistakes as we used to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny. Like, people try to get so up in arms about mistakes. Like, I always call out what my mistakes are. Like, I'm just like, yeah, like, I fucked this up. Who cares? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. this is such an imperfect process. Like, evaluation and scouting and even with the ability to make it more of a science with numbers and everything, it's still the, the art of it is what numbers to care about, right? Like the numbers uh, are important. And I think that you even agree with that as someone who comes at it from more of a scouting background. Uh, I certainly come at it from more of a scouting background, but use numbers just in the same way. And it's, it, you're never going to get this all right. You're just never going to, it's impossible. Who cares? Let's just have some fun doing it. Uh, okay. Adam, we want to talk about the combine 
We are here. We are going to dive deep into the combine process itself. We're going to talk about winners, losers, guys who stood out over the course of the last few days in Chicago. Uh, And then we're going to talk a little bit about the G League Elite Camp. And then I want to pick Adam's brain on a couple of guys that uh, I know he is high on. And, you know, Matt and I have been a little bit skeptical on uh, on this show in the past. So uh, let's start with the combine itself. The combine itself is this really interesting, it's almost like an artifact from a time when evaluators and scouts didn't have easy access to tape and didn't have easy access to all of the bevy of resources that we currently have and needed to get all of these players into a single environment in order to evaluate them and have a better understanding of the way that this was going to work on an NBA court. Nowadays, it is devolved into something different. And I say the word devolved uh, purposely because it's just, look, I, I, I like the combine. I like that it exists as this big event that you can hold the lottery around and you can, you know, kind of kick off the NBA draft season in full for fans that, you know, may not be super familiar with prospects, right? It's just not all that valuable as an evaluation uh, thing now. It's great to get measurements. It's great for teams to be able to get medical checks on most prospects, uh, not all prospects, unfortunately, as agents have started playing games with uh, players and teams and trying to withhold certain guys from being able to contribute in that way uh, or even participate in that way. It's good for teams to be able to sit down with prospects, but the outer focused part of the combine, the public facing thing is really the measurements, the athletic testing and the five on five. And I mean, I'll just ask you, Adam, how how valuable do you find all of this information? It's funny. I always say measurements, testing, all the stuff it's valuable unless it isn't right. Like there's no, there's no way that you can look at any of this stuff and say an unathletic guy on film all of a sudden comes in and tests decently. And now I think he's a great athlete. Like it, it has to go hand in hand with the functionality of what you've seen on film before, how you've done your due diligence on prospects beforehand. Everything's a data point, right? Whether it's the measurements, the five on five testing, just the interaction that you have with a prospect when you walk past them in the hallway. Everything for these teams is some form of a data point. But I think we put way too much stock into either an official measurement, an official vertical leap, or how he played in a very loosely structured five-on-five scrimmage when the reality of the situation now is most of the guys who envision themselves as a first-rounder and believe that in order to carry yourself like a first-rounder, you sit out of the scrimmage, it just kind of waters down a little bit of the competition level and makes it harder to take anything away from it that translates to success in the NBA. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you mentioned the idea of functionality, right? Uh, Wendell Moore from Duke, and I don't mean to pick on Wendell. I think he's a fairly interesting prospect, a you know, top 40-ish kind of guy. Uh, Wendell Moore posted a 38 and a half inch max vertical leap. And when you watch Wendell Moore's tape, everything is below the rim. Like there's not a point where he really explodes up through contact like that he has to really significantly load up 
his lower half in order to be able to get that kind of elevation. And he just doesn't actually have that time to be able to do that in an NBA game. So you bring up the idea of functionality. So many of these numbers just aren't very functional in many ways. And that's just like one that I point to that it just doesn't, it doesn't add up on the tape. So like, how seriously do you want to take it at the end of the day? Yeah, and, and there are outliers and areas where you see something for the first time and it makes you think and you have to walk yourself back among being too interested by it. Like Christian Coloco and Travion Williams had two of the higher shot-making times in the star shooting drill for, for what that's worth. And, and afterwards, you have to sit down and, and remind yourself it might not be worth all that much. There's no defenders out there. They've probably been training for this exact drill so that they right. can show well. And then all of a sudden... Now decision makers are interested. Hey, can Christian Coloco really shoot it? He's a 22-year-old big, and we didn't see this in college. So uh, the amount of agency prep that goes into just showing well in this weekend, I think really changes the evaluation that a franchise can put into what they're seeing because it's almost like you know studying specifically for the SAT, doing well on the SAT right. and saying, well, let's throw the bad grades that he got from the year out of the window because he tested so well this one day. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I mean, uh, look, I talk to trainers very often. I'm, I would imagine that you end up doing it just, you know, in terms of coaching. Yep. Uh, pre-draft trainers literally train for these drills. Right. Like, that's why whenever the Memphis uh, Pro Day happened earlier this year, and Imani Bates had like a, I think he had like a 29-inch vertical leap or something. I was just like, look, I don't think Imani Bates is a great vertical athlete. I've always thought that he's a pretty below average below or a vertical athlete, but also keep in mind that he has not been training for the max vertical jump test in all likelihood for the last, you know, three or four weeks and is probably coming in, you know, maybe four or five inches below what that max vertical leap would be. And at the end of the day, the tape is what matters. So I just, I don't put a ton of stock into the athletic testing. Like, I'm not going to drastically rethink Jake LaRavia's movement skills uh, because he posted a 10.58 lane agility time that was 0.05 better than Terquavion Smith and 0.15 better than Kennedy Chandler, right? Like, I don't know. I I think that when I watch the tape, Kennedy Chandler looks a bit quicker than Jake LaRavia. That might be me. Uh, You know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm crazy on this one, but I just, it's hard for me to really get the value out of the combine, which is why, like, I didn't really feel a need to go. Like, the reason for me to go is to go and catch up with executives and go and hang out with people and continue to make new connections across the industry. I can get all the information I need, basically, from like the palm of my fingertips with my phone, let alone a laptop. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's look, it's networking, it's sourcing for NBA teams to go off of each other. It's a lot of teams hearing and sharing the same Intel back and forth to the point where buzz just continues to build and build upon itself. And and players are shooting up and their stock goes crazy just through that week. Like uh, I'm with you. I don't put a ton of stock into the athletic testing. Like you can't tell me JD Davison is less athletic than Christian Brown just because his vertical yeah. leap is four inches shorter. Uh, it's 
you know, it's much ado about nothing. Everything's a data point. All of it matters somewhat, but how much it matters, like really not that much. And then the other point here I want to bring up is the advent of the agency pro day. Uh, you look at how many people did not participate in athletic testing here in the measurements process. I mean, we had guys like, you know, Paula Bancaro and Chet Holmgren and Jaden Ivey. Like these guys obviously didn't participate, but then you had like Marjan Beauchamp, uh, you know, I'm trying to think here who else did not participate. Ben Matherin didn't participate. Uh, Dalen Terry didn't participate in any athletic testing. Mark Williams didn't participate in any athletic testing. Fanbo did not participate in any athletic testing. Like, what are we doing here? Yeah. And it's all, you know, it feels like it's all kind of at the hinge point of the NBA trying to do something with these agency pro days that makes sense for everyone involved. And the way the process used to be with agency pro days is you had to go out and travel across the country, right? Uh, you know, I'm trying to think like Wasserman would have theirs uh, in Southern California and BDA would have theirs in Southern California. And then you'd have to go up to either New York or Miami for excels. And then you might have to go to Chicago for priorities or, you know, things like that. Right. By trying to consolidate them all for the most part, not all of them are like this, but for the most part, the NBA has tried to consolidate all of them in Chicago in order for teams to no longer have to spend as much time traveling around the country at a time when they don't have a ton of time to spend in general on these things. And they're just not worth anything. Yeah. Like these things are rehearsed. These things are just not actual functional basketball in any way. I know it's nice to like see clips of, you know, let's, I'll pull the Shaden Sharp thing. I talked a little bit about Shaden Sharp on the Tuesday podcast I did with Penny right. uh, talking about the lottery because Sharp's pro day was on the Monday this week or last week of combine. Uh, you talk to people that were there, like it's real easy to pull, you know, a two and a half minute clip of Shaden Sharp knocking down shots and throwing down some crazy dunks and all of that. The people that were there were just like, yeah, you know, he looked long. <laughs> looked like he had long arms, right? The last I checked, the game of basketball isn't played one on oh in a in a gym where a trainer's just putting you through whatever workout is gonna show best for you. And and right. you know, it used to be with a lot of these group workout dynamics that at least they'd push each other hard enough or they'd, they'd go at each other in certain drills where you can compare amongst the guys that you're, you're seeing in the gym at the same time. But this even seems like a watered down version of those where the yeah. goal of every agent of every workout setting is just to make none of the guys look bad. And, and with that, yep. everyone's going to look good. It's why you come out of these workouts. And you know, if there are 42 guys that had workouts, there were 42 great workouts that happened in Chicago this week. It just means nothing. And, you you know, you, there are 50 guys that should go in the first round in this draft. All of them had good workouts. Like half of them didn't play in the 5v5 scrimmages because the new thing now is if you carry yourself like a first round pick, that means you don't play in the scrimmages. So it's just there's there's not much to gain in terms of separation from those guys at, at this point. Yeah, and you bring up the uh, <laughs> the fact that these things are just one on o, right? I mean, you talk to NBA 
evaluators that are there. They're just like, we didn't learn anything. We didn't learn anything. Like that's what people will say. And it's, it's like amusing a little bit when you see, and I don't blame John Cavoni for this. Like he's posting Mm -hmm. highlights. It's cool. Right. Like do your thing. It's more the people that will extrapolate the meaning of it from the highlights that John posts. Right. Because John is the person doing this. Right. And, um, you know, like I said, like, cool, like continue to get your um, likes and your engagement. Like, I think that's valuable for him. Right. I don't care enough to do it. John does great. Um, But it's just like, don't extrapolate off of this as if it means something like it it just doesn't at the end of the day. Uh, It just absolutely does not. If there's one thing to take, it would be shooting form for guys that you had questions about it. Right. Like, it's just another data point sure. to, get to stand there and watch those guys and say, Hey, did Dyson Daniels really change his form? I know we got so much better as the season went on. Was it consistent in his pro day workout? It's a, again, another data point. Cause when they bring them in for team centric workouts at their facility, they're going to be looking at that same thing. So it's just a little bit more volume to gain that consistency. That's about it for me though. Yeah. I, I, I just can't, I can't do it. We need to find a different way to do this. We need to find, something that can be of value. I mean, and you bring up participation in the five on five and I wanted to save that so that we could then transition into talking about like winners and losers in the five on five section. I just have no idea what guys like Max Christie and Dale and Terry and guys like that, that are on the cusp of the first round could really genuinely help themselves by participating, just not participating and look like Max Christie. He, announced on Monday or Tuesday that he is a hundred percent in this draft class through Woj. Maybe there's something there that we don't know. I'm not saying that Max Christie has a promise. I don't know if Max Christie has a promise or anything. Maybe there was some assurance that the agency was very comfortable with and they were just like, okay, we're not going to you know, play this game. Right. Um, I just don't know why like someone like Dale and Terry would perform really well in that setting. No uh, Max Christie, if he shot well, he would like shoot up draft boards uh, if he would play in a setting like that. Even someone like a guy that I know you really like, Jaden Hardy. Yeah. Jaden Hardy should go play in that thing. Jaden Hardy would kill some dudes in that thing, I think. Up and down play, like there were two, it, it felt like there were two distinct styles happening in the five on five. Like you look at the Friday game, right? Or the Friday games. The first one was the one with like Andrew Nemhard and Drew Timmy and those guys going absolutely nuts. And there was, it was defense optional. It was just an absolute up and down shit show in a lot of ways. And that's a setting that Jaden Hardy would fucking thrive in. He'd have been unbelievable. And then you look in the second game on Friday and it was like, slow it down, drag it out, run in some half court stuff. Like it was actually like kind of an interesting environment to evaluate Mm -hmm. and I think Jaden Hardy would be interesting in that, like to at least get the tape, but for whatever reason, he decides not to participate. And I I just look, there were something like 40 to 45 guys. I think that didn't participate in these five on five games. I, I just don't understand it. I don't, I don't get it. If you're a first round pick, do it. Like Terquavion Smith helped himself. This next guy we're going to talk about, like really, really helped himself. I, I don't know 
what the idea is behind this. Can you, can you like fathom a reason if you're these guys, like not to go and compete? Yeah. To me, it's just this such risk averse prospect uh, thought process of, you know, I have some first round buzz. I have some first round potential and it's better for me to protect that stock than it is to go out there and maybe ruin some of it. Right. Like better to have people think I'm an idiot than open my mouth and remove all doubt that type of, uh, of thought process. So I can't get behind it, especially when there's 40 guys that are doing that. And and you look at a year ago, a guy like bones Highland comes really helped himself, really helped himself, turned himself into a first round pick and, and got a really good fit in Denver as a result of that. So I think competitive organizations in particular, who are a lot of times the ones that are picking in the twenties, that later part of the first yep. round, the playoff based teams, they're looking for guys that might be able to come in and play right away. And they value competitiveness based on the cores that they have built. You help yourself a lot to get into that round or at least solidify your spot there and not to jump too far ahead. But like one guy who I thought did that, by playing was Christian Brown from Kansas. Just, yeah. you know, uh, right on that fringe potentially of, you know, he's one of those, what, 65 guys that get rumored for being a first round pick right now. But because he's on that borderline, he's super competitive and went and played in that, those scrimmage settings. Like he played well, he wasn't great by he any. He played way. okay. I thought, yeah, yeah I didn't was, think he like blew the doors off the place or anything. Yeah. He was fine. But I think the fact that he played matches up with a lot of what's going to be appealing for teams about him, which is totally. competitiveness, willingness to do whatever it is to help his team win. If you're a team who's trying to compete for a championship and drafting in the twenties in the later part of the first round, that small sample from Chicago of just saying, Hey, he's going to go out there and compete almost becomes more important than taking a flyer on a guy who chose not to play, but has a decent amount of upside. Which is what's frustrating to me about Dale and Terry, particularly uh, that's Dale and Terry's brand. Like that's who he is. Like he's competitive. He's like an energy guy. Uh, you know, you talk to people around Arizona. Like he was the guy that like brought the energy in the building up. Right. Like this is who he is. And there's a weird choice from him not to play. Uh, this comes from someone that like, look, I've been high on Dale and Terry, like the whole process, right? Like he's been the guy I watch for in the tournament. Like I have a first round grade on him right now. Like I was like, what are we doing here? Like, why are we, why are we not going through with this? Um, the guy that, you know, you could maybe make a case for not helping himself is Leonard Miller. Like Leonard Miller was probably the worst player during the five on five setting. I thought his situation is so much drastically different than all of these other guys. Like, I'm sure that's the guy that people will point to, Oh, you can hurt yourself by playing five on five. Leonard Miller has like, very rarely played high level competitive basketball at this point. Like you go back and you watch those Ontario scholastic uh, game, like, you know, prep league games. It's just not, it's not the same as even like high level high school games. It's not the same as college games to be sure. Like it, it it is, it is a level and a half below what you will find uh, even at the highest level of high school games where, you know, Montverde's playing a national schedule. IMG's playing a national schedule. Plenty of these schools are playing national schedules. And this isn't to say that Fort Erie did not play that. I mean, they went and played in the National Prep Showcase. But he was such a central uh, force for that team that he never really learned how to play in a team concept. And I thought that really showed up 
in the combine, I mean, his defensive rotations were non-existent. Like he's, he didn't know where to go. He just didn't know what to do. And that's okay. I don't think that this makes Leonard Miller a worse prospect long-term. It's what we expected to see largely. I thought from him, it's just, uh, I thought that if one person was going to hide, it was going to be him, I guess. And I actually respect him more because he decided to play and was competitive about it, even though he might not have been ready to play. Yeah. I, I think the for him, there's really no downside to going out and playing, right? Like if he's projecting himself as a guy that yeah. needs to be a first round pick this year and has to stay in this draft, maybe like a JD Davison, a Peyton Watson, where there's still that mysterious upside that they had from a long time ago and they don't want to ruin that. Then you can understand not playing Miller it's not that he's a loser from this prospect because uh, this process, because he didn't play well, it's valuable for him to have the feedback of here's what you need to work on. Go back to college, go to someplace, Kentucky, wherever for a year or two. The ignite is the, you know, other one. Yeah. Yeah. Go to the ignite for a year, work on these things in a more professional organized setting. And next year you're probably going to end up being a lottery guy because let's face it, he's intriguing enough right now to be in that top 60 invited to the camp. So it's just a long-term play for Miller. Not exactly that he's not a winner from the process, but he definitely looked like he didn't belong out there, right? Like a, a lot of the habits yeah. in last year were uh, the poor habits were evident. Well, and this is a guy that I think most of these players, like Christian Brown has played in so many big games throughout the course of his career. I don't think he's actually gaining from like gaining from a development standpoint, playing in the combine, right? right? right. I actually think Leonard Miller probably gained from a development standpoint, playing in the combine and getting to feel what that athleticism is like. Another game where he gets to like really feel what high level athleticism is on the court, where he gets to feel like what the spacing is like as a guy that's six foot 10, that's played in more condensed courts for the most part. Like, I think that's actually a really develop uh, a really positive developmental moment for Leonard Miller. And I really, uh, We'll be interested to see if a team is willing to promise him at a level where he is comfortable with staying in the draft. Ultimately, I think it would be better for him long-term, for his basketball development, for the ease with which his career can start, uh, You know, potentially being a first-round player that gets drafted and gets more organizational commitment. I think it would probably be better for him to go back and do like the Ignite next year really learn from the process as we've seen someone like, you know, Jaden Hardy, Jaden Hardy had a disastrous first half of the season and it still didn't really hurt him that much. In the, I mean, it hurt him in the process, but like he's still going to go somewhere in the first round. Yeah. And I think that is the pathway forward for Miller again, not uh, he's just not ready right now. And a lot of times the, the difference between a first round and a second round pick is pretty substantial for guys that need development because it's an extra yeah year or two of contractual patience from the the drafting team. And if you're not going to be in that top 30 or a team doesn't feel comfortable with that right now, you just put yourself in the best position possible to get there next year. Yeah. I mean, you're a second round pick. The timeline is in my opinion, you get 18 months. Uh, You get 18 months to start showing something. You don't have to be a positive player immediately. Um, You don't have to be a positive player. Even by the time those 18 months roll around by NBA standards, you have to show something, right? You have to show continued development. And I worry a little bit that Leonard Miller is just probably 
12 months out from that 18-month window making sense, maybe. But let's let's talk about winners and losers. Let's talk NBA draft combine winners and losers. Okay. The first one has to be Jalen Williams. Santa Clara's Jalen Williams. Uh six foot six, seven foot two wingspan. He came out in terms of the anthro. Uh, I believe he was top five in the vertical test. I believe he was, you know, very high up in most of the athletic testing. Uh mm-hmm. came in like in terms of standing reach. At, I have the number here. It was eight, nine and a half. That is bigger than Matthew Mayer, who is six foot nine. That was bigger than David Roddy. It was bigger than Jabari Walker, who's a power forward, bigger than Jake LaRavia, like bigger than EJ Liddell. He's a wing that plays as like a two guard almost that has the standing reach of a power forward, essentially. On top of that, played exceptionally well in the five on five. Uh, th- this dude is a baller. And It comes at a time where when you talk to NBA executives, they're going back through tape. They're trying to find the guys that are sleepers, trying to find guys they might have missed throughout the course of the season. Man, Jalen Williams keeps coming up. Like even before the combine, like he was the guy for me that kept coming up from NBA scouts saying, oh no, this guy's going to be a first round pick. Trust me. It's why I moved him into the first round, you know, what, a month and a half ago, it feels like. Uh, Cause I just had heard from enough teams that were like, okay, Jalen Williams, this guy is going to be a first round pick. Like he's really good. Comes out to the combine competes by the way, could have shut it down after the first day came back, competed again. The second day blew it up even more. What did you see from Jalen Williams? That was so impressive. Well, well, I think that mentality first and foremost is one that we got to really applaud because in a, in a time when we're talking about agencies controlling this process so much just to make you look good, taking the risk and being rewarded for it is, is really what it's all about. So hats off to Jalen for that. Really like the way that he he plays because of the combination of skills that he has. You know, uh, last year for 40 minutes, average 21, five and five. He's a little bit of a do it all type of guy. I think there's some three level potential there to his game, you know, shot nearly 40 percent from three. He's a really good passer, particularly with his offhand. That's something that really caught my eye and, and diving into the film on him. Like his left hand passes both lobs to the rim and, and just kickouts out of the pick and roll. Really interesting. Uh, I'm not in love with the defense. I think it's fine. I think he did a, a better job against guards than he does against bigger wings, which yep. is you know, interesting for a guy of his wingspan. You think maybe you can play smaller and guard up. I think the opposite is best for him where he almost cross, cross matches on some smaller guys. Um, Helped himself a ton this week. You know, the the timeline and the process of, of how the week unfolds really just saw his momentum continue to get better. Um, the, the wingspan and the measurements came out first, and he had the, the longest wingspan or, or I guess the best differentiator between height and wingspan of any guy that was measured this yeah. year. And then Rafael Barlow, uh, I know a friend of ours who uh, was there covering the combine, tweeted something about him being a potential lottery pick, which – Maybe a little too rich for me right now, but certainly understand the the intrigue and the upside. Then he comes out afterwards and plays really well in back-to-back scrimmages. And like, if there's something to take away from the 5v5 section, it's, hey, there's one or two guys out there that are just too good for this level of competition. 
those two guys turn into first rounders. Last year, that was Bones. This year, it's Jalen. So uh, certainly understand the first round buzz. Uh, I was a little later to the party on him, but yeah, first round guy for sure. Yeah, with Jalen, it's it's interesting. And by the way, uh, Adam, I believe you just released uh, your Jalen Williams scouting video. Uh, was it Sunday or Saturday? Yeah, Sunday. Which yep. Sunday. So go to the Box and Ones YouTube channel. You'll be able to watch probably – I haven't looked at the video yet. I'd imagine it's like 10 minutes. of yeah, about 14. Yeah. So we, we put a little extra juice into this one. Yeah, so go watch that, and you'll see everything you need to know in terms of Jalen's game. But, you know, you mentioned that idea of three-level ability – it's dribble pass shoot for me. Like he can really handle the ball. He has real shake. Uh, he has a low center of gravity despite having that length. It feels like, which is very like a strange combination kind of, and he uses it really well. He plays with really good bend. He plays with some force. Uh, this is a kid that when he committed to Santa Clara was like six foot three and they committed, they recruited him as basically like a lead slash combo guard. Mm-hmm. and he grew to six foot six and now is a seven foot two wingspan and has the size and length of a power forward. Like it, it's this strange developmental story of a late bloomer that looks poised to continue to develop uh, just because of all of these skills that he developed previously uh, when he was kind of a different player type at the end of the day. So, you know, is can now handle the ball at a high level. You mentioned the live dribble passing with his offhand. I mean, he can do it with both hands. He can do it one-handed. You know, he hits those cross-corner reads. He hits dump-offs. Like, he's a really, really impactful player uh, as a passer. Obviously can handle. I love his shake despite having that low center of gravity. Uh, he has, like, weird... He doesn't play square, but, like, he has, like, a very boxy frame, kind yeah. of. And it's you don't see guys that have this boxy of a frame that have this much shake off the bounce. It feels pretty rare to me, right? But he also knows how to use that frame pretty well. Like he's he's a big fan out of the pick and roll of hostage dribbles, yeah. getting his defender on his back, making the right reads, being patient. Like he knows that with his his long arms and and pretty good handle of the ball, nobody's coming from behind to poke that thing away from him. So he's fe- very comfortable feeling for contact. You know, he's he's not as explosive of a finisher in the half court as you might think based on his again his vertical testing numbers and right. he's a decent decent lob thread and, and kind of above the rim dunker in the full court. But uh, the combination of length, of playmaking ability, he's got a high feel and, and just how he can make shots is uh, is intriguing. He's not quite there as an isolation scorer or a one on one guy, so I'm not expecting him to come in and really play that primary role in the NBA but if you're drafting for the upside of somebody turning into that he has to be mentioned uh, as one of the more intriguing guys outside of the conventional top 10 or 12. Yeah and look this is a guy that you know I I thought I was early to the party on and had him you know in the first round a while ago (laughs) I was too low (laughs) I mean like it's what it comes down to like it's it's just hard to find guys that are this big this long that have this kind of dribble pass shoot ability uh, that's at the end of the day what it comes down to. Uh, it's just very rare to find these combination of skills in this frame. And all of it translates. All of it's valuable at the NBA level is the critical point of all of this. So I'll be interested to watch Jalen Williams moving forward as we go through this process. I would imagine, you know, I, I thought more top 20 than lottery, but, you know, not impossible that he could get 
that high, I guess. Maybe. We'll see. The other winners here. I'll give you the floor. Who, who was another guy that really stood out to you, Adam? So hard to know if this is a winner through how he went through the process or just kind of the buzz coming out of the time when they were over in Chicago. But Jake LaRavia comes out of this with a lot of positive momentum, you know, came in slated to play in the 5v5 scrimmages, ended up withdrawing from that. And common kind of thought process out there right now is one of the reasons he may have done that is due to getting a first round promise. He was one of those late risers uh, who started to get more and more momentum as people were uncovering film the first or second time. I know you were really early on the Ravia. I think you and Penny had him as a prospect of the week, like way back in December, or early January, when you were talking, um, you know, about Wake Forest and their early season run there. It, he measured decently well, like a, he, more than anything with him. It just it feels like the first round grade is a little too rich for me, but I can certainly understand the appeal for a guy like him, right? Like he measures okay. He shoots the ball incredibly well in workouts. And I think that there's been enough positive buzz about workouts before coming into Chicago that people were really buying him as a high-level catch-and-shoot prospect. And if he's shutting down, playing in 5v5 competition, that's only a positive sign for how NBA teams are, are viewing him as well. Yeah. Look, does he have a promise? Does he not have a promise? I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm skeptical. Let's say that. Sure. Uh, at the end of the day, I think though that he is going to go in the first round. Uh, and this is something that I've been pretty clear on for a while now. It, it's just because of the mix of extremely high level feel for the game, as well as the shooting. I know that, you know, we've texted back and forth about Jake and your concern is more the shooting numbers and the percentage of his shots that are three-pointers, essentially. And I actually think that that's fair to an extent. Like, I think that he passes up three-pointers at times. But also on top of that, I think that the release is a little bit slow at the end of the day. And, like, it could actually work to limit his three-point volume. We keep bringing up Christian Brown almost, you know, tangentially to our conversations that we're having, right? One thing I worry about with Christian Brown is he has the very low release point. Mm -hmm. And I worry that that's actually going to limit his volume of three-point shots that he can generate off of movement, uh, you know, as a potential floor spacer at the NBA. And he does a little bit more uh, beyond just being a floor spacer to potentially be able to play at the NBA level. But Jake is taller. He's bigger. I think he has a higher release point than Christian Brown. Like, I think he's going to be able to generate those shots a little bit more. Uh, than Brown can, but he has to just tighten up that release and get a little bit quicker, I think, at the end of the day. Yeah, and, and look, if, if anyone's playing the NBA draft bingo game right now, like take a shot for functionality because that's the, the word of the day. And right. with Jake LaRavia, like the functionality of all of the things that he does well on a basketball court, I don't know how well they translate to being that fourth or fifth option, go stand in the corner and knock down shots. Like I, I don't love him mm. as a movement shooter because it's a little slower. He has to be pretty square to the hoop to get those shots up. High feel guy, but not a primary creator out of ball screens. Like Wake Forest used him a decent amount out of post-ups, and he plays a really patient game on the interior, where in the NBA against high-level rim protectors and there's just a little bit more length and athleticism on the floor, I don't know how much that flies. So a, a lot of questions I have about where he fits in offensively to the point where he's going to have to be 
a really, really good catch and shoot prospect in order to, to really deserve a lot of that first round attention that he's getting. I think his stroke is certainly good enough to get there, but it's not versatile in a lot of ways. And like you said, it, it could stand to be sped up a little bit as well. So here, here'd be my only pushback to that. Cause I actually agree with most of what you just said. I think the fact that you bring up the idea that he's never been a primary creator, right? I think the fact that he generates assists and generates positive passing plays while never being a primary creator is actually like a really high level positive to his game as he translates into being like a fourth or fifth option in the NBA. Cause that's absolutely what he's going to be when he's on the court. Like I think that the way that he processes the game moves the ball quickly. Like, I, if I remember correctly, you like Dyson Daniels. You don't love I do. Dyson Daniels, right? Yeah, I have, I have Daniels, I think, 10th right now. So I like yeah. him. Yeah. It's a lot of the same stuff that I see with Dyson Daniels where he's immediately reading rea- reading and reacting to what's happening across the court in making his decision before he even catches almost and then making the right play. Uh not always generating an assist, not always leading to something that's going to show up in his box score, but he's just moving the ball along in a way that creates more functional, coherent offense while also being a guy that, you know, six foot eight white dude is just going to get automatic attention as a shooter at the end of the day at the NBA level. So uh, that's kind of the stuff that I like with LaRavia and why I see him as a first round pick. I, anything in the top 20, I think is kind of nuts. I, yeah. I really like Jake, but I'm not there in terms of how worried I am a little bit about his defense. I think he's a really smart, intuitive def- defender. I just have some concerns in terms of his ability to play in space. Um, I, I I love him somewhere in the 21, 22 to 30 range. Uh, you know, so, something like that, I think, is where I am. Yeah, very, um, very fair. Very, very fair. Yeah. Okay, uh, the guy I wanted to point out next in terms of winners and losers of the combine is Terquavion Smith. Terquavion, I believe, dropped 17 in his first uh, NBA draft combine scrimmage game and then shut it down, which uh, after his athletic testing where he tested really well in terms of lane agility, all that shit, um, and he tested well in terms of vertical leap, made all the sense in the world to shut it down. Uh, Played well in that first game, made pull-up threes, made some high-level shots, just everything that you're looking for out of a potential scoring combo guard that could eventually translate to the NBA level. He shot the ball really, really well in the uh, in the shooting drills as well. And I think that that went a long way in, again, starting the buzz, getting people really looking at him heading into how the, uh, how the week is going to go, and then backed a lot of it up with the to play in the 5v5 scrimmage. I really liked Terquavion. He was a guy, again, I was sleeping on a lot through the process, went back a mm-hmm. little over a week ago, dove in, huge fan. Um, you know, the 11, final 11 games of the year, he basically averaged 20 points a game, shooting 39% from three on almost 10 attempts with a two-to-one yeah. assist turnover ratio. Like, he really turned it on as he started to figure out Kind of a COVID casualty on the recruiting front, played in a smaller place, yep. didn't get a ton of eyeballs on him as a result of that. Skinnier guy, so when you come into college, you didn't have as much experience with AAU and high school the last year. It can take those guys a little bit longer to catch up to the speed, physicality of the game. I think he's much closer to the 20 points per game that we saw at NC State on high three-point volume. You know, He's 6'4", so he does have a little bit of height. The, the knock on him right now offensively is his finishing. He's not very strong near the basket. He tends to shy away from contact, but really good feel on his floater. 
I like his mid-range pull-up. I think it's got crisp touch to it. He takes space and creates space pretty well. Uh, and he killed bigs on switches this year, right? Florida State game, he was fantastic against them. Thought he did a good job against Duke in drop coverage. So the functionality of the film that we saw in Turquavion is really appealing for NBA pick-and-roll guards. I think teams that came into Chicago were looking to see, can he – you know, we know he can play off ball because he shoots it really well from three and is a solid catch and shoot guy. Can he really create offense at the NBA level? No. I don't know how you walk away from watching him in that first scrimmage and don't think at the very least he can be a microwave scorer in the NBA. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. He came in as the skinny, skinniest kid at camp, uh, 165 pounds. And I think that shows up in terms of the way that he finishes at the basket just doesn't have like the functional strength to be able to absorb contact in any way shape or form but he's such a lightning in a bottle shooter and shot creator and playmaker that uh, as he continues to get stronger I think that uh, that's really going to work at the next level you know he's probably a guy that spends time in the G League next year for the most part but you know again in that 20 to 30 range you know a lot of the guys that you know I've been kind of pumping up except for Dale and Terry who didn't play uh, you know, Terquavion Smith, Jake LaRavia, Jalen Williams. Those are three of my four guys that I put up into the first round in my most recent top 100 update. And they all performed really, really well at the combine. And it seems like they have some buzz behind them now because it's not that I thought they would perform well at the combine. It's that I thought they were good players. And like, I think that good players tend to play well in events like this. Uh, Terquavion's a guy though, that I have a lot of uh, faith in moving forward. Uh, to to kind of just figure it out at the next level at the end of the day. Uh, I'm trying to think, you know, I just said Traquavion. Is there anyone else that you've got here in terms of winners and losers? Well, you mentioned your four guys there, right? Jalen Williams, Jake LaRavia, Traquavion, and Dalen Terry. Uh, we share yep. three of those guys in terms of who we have as those later first round or, or guys that should be getting more attention. Christian Brown was the one that I would replace with. Uh, yeah, we should. With yeah. LaRavia. So I, I'm a big Brown guy just because I, I bet on competitiveness the end of the day, maybe that's the coaching side of me coming out a little bit too much in the evaluation process, but he is as um, in your face, cocky and loud mouth as it gets on a basketball court. And I actually like, I love that. Like I absolutely love <laughs> oh. about that. He's putting down transition dunks and then screaming at the Kansas cheerleaders in the front row right afterwards. Like yeah. there's something about him that just says like, I'd hate to play against that dude, which means I want to have him on my team. Uh, and again, I thought he showed functional passing pretty well in the, the first scrimmage, had six assists, just finds ways to move the ball. Like we talked about with LaRavia, he yeah. didn't play a ton as a primary guy, but he finds ways to get assists and, and process and move. I think that that's important, and I value that in Brown. I also love his on-ball defense. At the right position, I don't think he's a switchable guy one through four, but against twos and, and some of the smaller perimeter-bound threes in the NBA – like, I think he's going to yep. bother them a little bit, really be right up chest to chest on their drives and, and do a pretty good job of just frustrating people. And, and again, that's kind of the, the MO of a guy like Christian Brown. Like he's, he's an SOB, he's a competitor. He's going to frustrate anybody on the other team. And instead of going against him, I'd like to have him on mine. So uh, I, I gave him yeah. first grade. Yeah. You, you go and see Kansas play live anytime that Christian Brown has been there. It is an experience. Like, <laughs> That dude just screams at you all day. Like, mm -hmm. I remember at the Final Four and, like, you know, lucky enough to where, you know, I get to sit courtside at the Final Four. It's just, like, an unbelievable, you know, 
perk of my job, basically. And you see Christian Brown make that big late in the shot clock three to kind of ice the game against Villanova. I swear he came down, he dropped like 18 F-bombs in a five second span and just like was absolutely screaming at everyone in the front row, everyone uh, in like the little like front, like courtside spots, everyone like in the stands, all the Villanova players, all the Kansas players. It was the most incredible experience. Like I think that I've seen shout out Christian Brown Uh, top 40 guy for me. uh, I, believe in Christian Brown to an extent uh, in a way that, you know, I've been hesitant to come around on Christian Brown a little bit, but I'm starting to get there. The more that I watch him, the more that like, I kind of just pull up Kansas tape. I'm just like, you know what? Like this guy is just tough as shit. And I just kind of buy it at the end of the day. The thing that worries me continues to be like the low release point on the shot. And I don't know if he is like a 40% three point shooter. I think he's probably more like, 36 at the NBA level and can he do enough other shit to make it work at that level of three-point shooting I don't know Austin Reeves made it work this year like I, I kind of think that that's kind of the similar pathway right well it's, it's funny I have a, a piece coming out on Christian Brown tomorrow and Austin Reeves was already the guy that we wrote about as that comparison of yeah. you know, when Reeves was with Wichita State he was playing in that off-ball role a ton of movement a ton of spot-up threes then he got to Oklahoma and he played more with the ball in his hands. That was really valuable in knowing that he can do more, but knowing that the optimal role that he's going to play in at the NBA is something he's already done and knows how to succeed at. I think Brown has a very similar type of trajectory over his time at Kansas. Like you look at his three point attempt rate and how he was used as a freshman and sophomore, he was almost exclusively catch and shoot. And then this year he's playing a lot more attack and closeouts, a little more with the ball in his hands. Like, played a ton in transition and, and again was screaming at everybody that he could and dropping F-bombs. But you know that he can come in and be more of a high-volume three-point guy. Will he be 40%? Probably not. But I, I'm willing to bet on the shot just because I think he has great touch uh, on, on his release. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, the last guy I wanted to bring up was Darion Sebron, uh, another NC State guy, which, by the way, uh, for NC State to be as disastrous as they were this year as a basketball team with both he and Terquavion Smith is just kind of unforgivable to me. But you know what? Darion Sebron played a lot of point guard over the two days at the Combine. I thought he did really well getting his teammates involved. I love the way that he would grab and go and really be a transition point guard as much as anything. I still have some worries in terms of the way that his overall game translates because I think that he's a really poor defender and he obviously is a poor shooter that needs to continue to work on that jumper. I think the jumper at the end of the day is going to be the real swing skill for him because he's big enough to where I don't think NBA teams are going to like truly attack him constantly uh, at the NBA level. I really, uh, really was impressed with what I saw from Darion Sebron over the two days. Yeah. And I still don't know how to value him. Like I, I like Sebron yeah. when he dove into the film. He's missing two glaring things in his game. One is defensive polish and two is a shot. If one of them comes around, he's probably in good shape as an NBA player in some form, but yeah. you're banking on both of them coming around if you're drafting him in the top 40. And I think that that's, yeah. I think that that's hard to do. So like, I have no, he was great, but I have no idea how much that increases his draft stock because he just went out there and showed that what he did well at NC state, he could do well in a sloppy pickup five V five game at the combine. 
So, uh, <laughs> yeah, good, good showing, but I don't know what to take away from it. Yeah, totally. Uh, okay. Let's talk about a couple of guys that maybe didn't play so well. I have some concerns about David Roddy, uh, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, I, I love David Roddy. I want him to succeed. I thought that this kind of five-on-five setting showcased a lot of the concerns. Yep. Yeah, no, no doubt. I'm not a big comparison guy. Uh, I think that players are all their own unique combination of skills and traits. Um but there's, I'm going to break my own cardinal rule and give a comparison here. Like I see a lot of Anthony Lamb from Vermont in the way that mm. the body plays, the build, just kind of that unique positionless, but relies on his strength. And those guys, you know, the higher level you go of athlete, of, of really polished NBA physique that strength doesn't impact as much, they tend to hit a wall a little bit in terms of their impact. Like I, I think Roddy is the perfect projection of a G league all-star who probably doesn't have the right role playing skills to fit in, in the NBA. And again, there, there are a lot of ways that he got exposed there uh, at the, at the combine. And then I kind of was left on a sour note a little bit from the game against Michigan in the NCAA tournament. So uh, yeah, I, I like the Roddy as a fringe draftable prospect. I haven't had him in my top 60 for a while, uh, but yeah, it wasn't a great showing. Uh, Keon Ellis is another guy. Keon Ellis came in at 167 pounds or something like that. That is extraordinarily skinny. Uh, he really just desperately needs to put on weight. And I thought that he didn't play well in the five and five either. Like I, I thought that he was invisible for the most part and it's a significant problem for him. Uh, really like he should have come in and just like really, bothered the shit out of everyone defensively and then made catch and shoot threes. And he really did neither. It felt like. Yeah. He, he played to the style that was going on at the time instead, instead of the strengths that he brings to the table. Like when there's defensive organization and intensity, that's where he thrives and playing next to guards who are willing to share the ball and just hit him in the corner and let him shoot. This was not the great environment for him. So I'm willing to give a little bit of a pass in that regard. But still not a very positive takeaway, particularly with the the athletic testing and, and measurements that didn't really highlight a ton of for him. Anyone really stand out to you as like hindering themselves? You know, he didn't play, uh, but Patrick Baldwin Jr., like some of the measurements and the athletic testing stuff that came out from him, just like the lack of verticality and athleticism there was already stuff that we knew. Seeing it measured and officially, I, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me. Somebody tweeted it out that the only guys who tested worse were uh, pretty much only five men in the NBA, like guys who were legitimate bigs that had less vertical pop than a guy like Baldwin. I keep looking for reasons to give him a first round grade just because I, I loved the style of play that he, he had in the U19s or in high school and think that it pairs better in the NBA than it does in college let alone in a situation like Milwaukee that was just not made for his success. But every time I watch the film back or every time there's a new report, athletic testing measurement about him, it's just so much harder to justify giving him a top 35, 40 grade right now. Yeah. And if we're talking about, uh, you know, guys who lost in terms of, you know, measurements and, you know, strength and agility testing, right? Uh, John Butler posting like a 28 and a half inch vertical was concerning while also being 174 pounds at, I believe he came in at seven, two in shoes. Yeah. Uh, that is very 
light um, and like a very strange he came in at seven one in shoes i'm sorry but it's uh, it's a very light combination without much vertical pop and like vertical power combination yeah that feels very difficult to make work uh, at the NBA level. Uh, I, I'm, I've i never been quite as high on John Butler. Like, for the love of God, John, just please go back to Florida State. Continue to put on weight. Continue yeah. to put on, like, strength and um, continue to improve your three-point shot. Like, all of that. Like, I think he has a chance at some point, but nowhere near ready, I think. Yeah, certainly agree with that. And, and again, like, He's 172 pounds, 173 pounds. He weighs the same as I do, and he's 13 inches taller than me. And I end up on my ass every time I play basketball. So if he ever drives to the rim, like it's that's not his game. I understand that, but you got to have at least on the defensive end a certain amount of strength. He's nowhere near ready for that type of competition. Okay, do you want to do some of the G League Elite Camp? Just real quick. Uh, the reason I don't want to spend a crazy amount of time on the G League Elite Camp is that. You know, it's it's a group of players that I love and that I want all to succeed. But from what I was told by NBA evaluators that saw the camp, uh, it was not the strongest group of guys that have a chance to play at the NBA level. Uh, three guys that stood out that teams thought had a real shot were uh, Marcus Sasser was by far the guy. Like anytime I talk to teams about who their best players were at the camp, Sasser got brought up and it probably had to do with the fact that he blew up in his first game uh, on the Monday. And that really helps these guys a lot of the time because, you know, teams want to kind of zone out for the second game and first impressions are so valuable, uh, especially in the combine, by the way, where, uh, teams like literally and like evaluators are literally packing up during the second game uh, on Friday of the combine. Um, but Marcus Sasser really stood out as a guy that teams thought had a chance to get drafted if he ends up going through with the process. Uh, on top of that, who, who we had Jared Roden and Tyrese Martin, I believe, were the other two guys that stood out. Just bigger, stronger, physical, big East wings that uh, Jared Roden measured super well. Tyrese Martin's very physical. Um, those were the two guys. that anyone, like, really stand out to you uh, at the G League Elite Camp? I mean, definitely Sasser. Uh, I thought he, you know, coming off of an injury and, and was a little bit of a mystery of how he'd look. Super, super confident player. And he was able to put that on full display in the, the scrimmages. A little bit unfortunate just the way the week is set up for those guys who play well in the G League camp and then get pulled up to the NBA camp. Like their bodies are probably exhausted by that point. And, and him particularly as well, coming off of the foot injury. I think that like, priority even like held him out of the last game because it was like four games in four days or whatever and they were just like this might be too much for his body which is the smart thing to do and again i think it's harder to take away a lot of the translation from how sasser looked in the nba combine as a result of that but definitely played himself into draftable position and i think he he should stick with it in this draft you know you mentioned tyrese martin just his competitiveness stands out in a lot of These types of settings, I know he was fantastic down at uh, at Portsmouth and same yep. type of feedback from him here that he just makes plays happen and, and is willing to do all the dirty work for his team. I think that's probably more of a two-way type of contract guy than a draftable position, but he's earned himself some sort of a, an NBA home for next year. And then the the one guy I'd bring up, I'm just a big Pete Nance guy. 
Like I love bigs who are skilled, who shoot it, who play make. Like I just, I really like his game. He had some flashes, made a couple shots, high IQ decision-making on both ends of the floor. Uh, big fan of Pete Nance. Love it. I love that Pete Nance just got brought up. This is a, uh, this has been a Pete Nance positive, positive podcast uh, over the year that he's been a potential draft prospect. So no, I'm in on that. Uh, let's, talk about a couple of guys that you really like. And there's one particularly that I want to give you the floor on because I feel like on this show, Matt Penny and I have been a bit lower on Jaden Hardy than the general consensus has been uh, throughout the process. Although the consensus seems to have come to where we are on it, uh, where we have him as a later first round pick. You've kind of actually swayed me a little bit to where I think I might end up with him like around the 20 mark at the end of the day. I would love to hear your pitch on Jaden Hardy because I know that you have him even way higher than like top 20 guy. So I give you the floor, Adam Spinella. Yeah. So I have Jaden Hardy right now as a top six prospect. I have a number six on the board, which is incredibly, incredibly rich for a lot of people out there. And I totally understand why. Um, but there are two things that really stand out for me. One is draft philosophy, and the other is how good you have to be to earn certain opportunities. Uh, the, the draft philosophy that I tend to have in the top 10 is that you're looking for guys that are going to, at some point, be you know, flagship carriers for your franchise. And typically, those are guys who can go out there and just score in a playoff series, create their own be really, really good on-ball and off-ball scorers. I think Hardy has a lot of evidence that he can be both of those things. He's not polished enough in those areas right now, but he's shown a lot of evidence that he's confident, he's got some three-level potential, and has a a really tight ball handle, the wiggle, the ability to, to create separation for his own shot. We can go back and forth about the frustrations, about you know relying on those step backs as opposed to trying to get to the rim but uh, of a huge believer that that's kind of what you draft for. And in, in my opinion, outside of the top five guys in this draft, the Chets, the Jabari's, Paolo's, Jaden Ivey's, Shaden Sharp's, Hardy is the right type of upside swing to take for any franchise that just says, hey, I believe he's going to score 20 a game. That's more valuable than a, the risk reward anywhere else. The, the other part of the equation is how good you have to be to earn the opportunity that Jaden Hardy just got, right? Like we talk a lot about the top 60 of these guys that were going to the NBA draft combine and some of them might not have showed well, but how amazing of an accomplishment is it for them to be considered one of the 60 best in the world at something? Jaden Hardy was given the reins on a professional basketball team to be their lead offensive creator at 18 years old. I don't think that that happens to guys who are not lottery talents. And again, there's enough athletically and defensively that he has to be able to come around on. But the offensive talent is incredibly clear. And I don't want to punish an 18-year-old in a professional league for not being incredibly efficient when really what we should impress by is the fact that he's deserving of that volume. And, yeah, you know, I, I keep going back and forth on how much the numbers really matter for a guy like Hardy, but it's the progression throughout the season and how much better he got, he was in that final month of the year from the first part of the year. And that's not just numbers wise. It's the playmaking reads that he made out of the pick and roll, 
the comfort in keeping his dribble alive, the snaking and getting to the basket and finishing around big men a little bit more. Like you could see him figuring it out. And I'm just a believer that, you know, guys who aren't great defenders at the college level, the concerns over that are typically overblown come draft time. I mean, I remember two years ago hearing Anthony Edwards is, you know, not being the greatest defender. His athletic tools were way different than Hardy's. But at the end of the day, like guys, when the stakes are high, tend to figure it out a little bit and, and get the best out of themselves that they can. I think Hardy will not be as big of a negative on the defensive end that would prevent me from wanting to, to draft him. Um, So again, a long winded answer of saying really believe in his overall potential and think that he's the type of swing that you look for when you're trying to say, you know, what does any franchise need? What is the right thing to, to win games in the postseason? It's guys you can go out there and create their own shot consistently at a really high level. Yeah. That's a really good pitch. And it's something that when I went back and did the draft guide profile on Jaden Hardy, the thing that stood out to me most was the ball handling. Like I actually think he has the best functional handle in this draft class Mm -hmm. is kind of where I'm at on this. Uh, Jaden Hardy probably, okay, let me rephrase. I think that Jaden Hardy probably is the best technical handle in this draft class. Uh, Jaden Ivy literally just being able to run around someone and like run past someone is probably a bit more functional yeah. uh, than what Jaden Hardy can do. And at the end of the day, I kind of just buy that Jaden Ivy is going to make that work at the NBA level. But once you get past Jaden Ivy, I think in terms of just technical ability off the ball, the way that he strings together, change of pace and change of direction moves, the way that he can string together like a hesitation, he'll do like a hang dribble into a crossover, into a between the legs, into another between the legs, into a step back. And you're just like, oh, that's like a professional move. That's not a, uh, that's not an 18 year old, like kind of playing around here. That's a like NBA caliber move that he's able to get separation on. The the two things that worry me a little bit on Jaden Hardy are that I don't think he's as good of a shooter as someone like say Cam Thomas was last year in terms of his touch like cam thomas has always been like hovering around that like 90 percent mark from the foul line and i think that Jaden hardy has as well but you kind of just watch the way the ball comes out of his hand it feels a lot cleaner with cam thomas than it does with Jaden hardy and i'm a little bit worried about Jaden hardy being a high enough level shooter right now to take advantage of his ability to separate which i actually really buy at the nba level the second is the defense like you are a little bit higher on the defense. The guys that tend to exceed effort level questions on defense are the tools guys. The guys that just like once the game gets tough and like once the game starts to matter, they play their tools up, right? Yeah. Jaden Hardy doesn't have those tools to rely on. Like he is a the reason he's so successful as a ball handler is more that he can string together a change of pace and change direct change of direction at once can play at his own pace and can rock the defender to sleep more through just hesitation and everything. It's not like nuclear athleticism. No, it's on defense. I worry about, he has no real, mm, just no real ability to recover uh, at the end of the day. There's no margin for error is the word I'm looking for Uh, with him defensively. 
to where, like, you look at someone like Jordan Poole, like, I, I don't think Jordan Poole's not trying defensively in the playoffs right now, but he's still getting toasted every time that someone, like, really attacks him, right? So I worry that Jaden Hardy could end up getting kind of just toasted at the end of the day defensively in a way that where if the shooting also is more in the 36% range, that's a tough combination and that's probably not worth a first round pick. But if it's, it's so scalable based on the shooting, like if he is a 38% three point shooter at high volume and, you know, hitting three threes a game on, you know, eight, three point attempts per game, that's, that's probably worth a very high like lottery pick. That's probably not worth a high lottery pick maybe, but worth like a mid-tier lottery pick. You throw in the one thing that like we haven't really talked about is his passing ability. I actually really like his passing ability I love quite it. a bit. Yeah. Like I, yeah, like some of the live dribble reads he made uh in flashes, not in consistent moments over the course of his year, especially later in the year with the Ignite, I thought was very, very impressive. Uh, The problem is that his mindset is so geared towards scoring that he doesn't always take advantage of the just natural tools he has as a playmaker. If he can find a way to like kind of mix and match those two skills a little bit better and you know actually play with vision and instead of taking bad shots from the mid-range that are just fucking terrible like offense killers i actually really kind of buy the skill level like when, when i went back I, I like i was expecting almost to have Jaden hardy as like a you know 27 to 35 range guy when i went back i was like oh no this is definitely a first round pick this is like a probably top 20 guy for me mm-hmm. i can't quite get to where you are but the tape was more impressive than what i thought well in in context is important too whether it's the shot selection or the the playmaking and and assist numbers i think a lot of people look at low assist numbers and assume that there's not a lot of great playmaking going on there the context in the ignite system is incredibly important because of who he was surrounded with like this team was not expertly put together for a lead yeah. guard to go and just score because Dyson Daniels didn't shoot the ball well. Marjan Beauchamp didn't shoot the ball well. Scoot Henderson didn't shoot the ball well. Michael Foster right. didn't shoot the ball well. Like all of these guys that were supposed to be surrounding Jaden Hardy when he had the ball, just not a lot of three-point threats. And the floor is shrunk. And because he's not a great athlete and relies on his skill, that's a lot harder to try to get through. Uh, I I think that his assist numbers probably take a little bit of an uptick. Maybe a few of those mid range jumpers or step back threes disappear when he's surrounded by better shooters and maybe the rim attempts and and percentages go up a little bit as well. So I'm with you on the defensive stuff. Like there's concerns, but I believe in his offensive package so much that I'd be willing to build a roster around, you know, blanketing some of those concerns and think that that's, that what he brings to the table offensively is valuable enough to do that. Yeah, I think that that's the slight difference between us. I wouldn't be willing to build a roster around it. I would be willing to bring him into my roster to see if he can like just accentuate some of those passing abilities and excise some of the disaster shot selection, and then early on build a second unit around him maybe. 
uh, maybe by like year two or so, year three, uh, and see if that works is kind of where I'm at on it. But yeah, like I'm, I'm tentatively more in on Jaden Hardy than what I expected to be when we started this process. The other guy I want to talk to you about is AJ Griffin, because when I watched AJ Griffin's tape back, I, I think I ignored maybe how bad he was defensively while the season was happening. Um, He's a disaster on defense. Like he is really fucking bad on that end. And I don't think that it has gone noticed enough. Like I complain about coach K as much as anyone. I have questions about him. I actually like, can't really say much about what he chose to do with AJ Griffin, like taking him off the court late in games for important moments because of how bad the defense was. Yeah. And it got to the point where, like, look, I, I look at things through a coaching scheme. I always try to figure out whatever game I'm watching or and seeing yeah. a team, like how does this player that we're trying to evaluate fit into the team context? What are some of the principles that the, the coach really believes in and is, is either, you know, steadfast on year after year or is adjusting to try to make work with the group that they have. And with AJ, he was not meant for a switching scheme that Duke was trying to play one through four because he would get roasted by smaller guys. He was not ready to, uh, to read and accept switches when he was guarding somebody that was about to exchange with the ball. And his help defense was pretty atrocious in a lot of different ways. So he got exploited in many different circumstances. And it got to the point where in games where there were you know, smaller, uh, non-off-the-dribble threats, but really key offensive pieces, like Syracuse had Bayheims and, and Virginia Tech had some shooters in their, their offense that they would run around screens. Coach K just said to AJ, when you're out on the floor, face guard those guys and give no help. We're not going to depend on you for those rotations, and we're not going to let you switch on to anybody else to, to ruin the mismatches for more athletic guys one-on-one. And it was the best usage of Griffin. That's not to say that he has a role in the NBA as a face guard lockdown guy. It's more so yeah, about no. he's, he's so behind in all of these other areas that he's almost unplayable if you don't take special precautions to, to really blanket him and build around him. He's young. He used to have a lot of athletic tools that I didn't see on display this year at Duke. Man, am I hoping he gets him back because watching AJ Griffin play in high school was a treat. Uh, I recruited, yeah. recruited one of his teammates, went to a bunch of games live. Like he was awesome. And he doesn't look like the same lateral athlete right now, which yeah. is concerning for me for a guy who's 18 years old. Um, his defense is just really, really behind. And in terms of evaluating him next to anybody else in the class, like right now, I think he might be the worst, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have the tools to make up for that eventually. Like of, of all of the guys who might be seen as poor defenders, just because he's strong and long and used to be athletic, there may be a pathway forward to gaining it, but there's so much work that's going to go into that process. Yeah. And to talk specifics, right. The, the thing that worries me is I don't know how you play him in a drop setting because the place where he actually does pretty well, the thing that I actually thought he did best this year 
I didn't think it was face guarding. I thought it was when he's matched up with like a more physical guy and could get his body on that guy. Cause like the thing that AJ Griffin is, is extremely strong. So if he could get his body and like get physical contact on the dude, it felt like it was a little bit better. And someone like say, you know, Giannis is way too big for him, but like someone like Kawhi, like I think that, his most natural matchup is someone like that who is just going to try and bully him and get to the spot. I actually weirdly think that he could be okay against a Kawhi that like just isolates constantly and just tries to like back you down and then eventually shoot over the top. Right. I think that AJ is like physically strong enough, especially through his lower half with how solid his base is to be able to do that. But there are so few guys like that in the league and you're going to have better options for guarding Kawhi at the end of the day, hopefully, if you're in the playoffs, than A.J. Griffin. Uh, you play him in a drop setting against one of these bigger wing creators. Uh, he's terrible getting through screens. He's yep. so boxy. Yep. He's like plays so like wide and like square to the everything that he does yep. that it might be like a hip flexibility issue as much as anything where he can't get through screens at all and then can't recover because he doesn't have the burst anymore to like really recover. Uh, And then, so if you play him in a drop scheme, that's just going to lead to breakdowns all day. And like you said, you can't play him in a switch scheme really because there's just no way he can guard quicker guards. He gets lost a little bit too often. I thought he got back cut pretty regularly as well. Just like an off ball defender that was, Yeah. Yeah. That was like just playing off the ball and trying to stay in position. He got caught ball watching a little bit too often. Um, Yeah. I just don't know what scheme you play him in that works, I guess. I have no idea either. And, and you look at those bigger physical wings, like a, like a Grant Williams who loves to bang with guys one-on-one down in the post. Like the reason Grant is valuable is because he's smart and knows when to switch and can keep smaller guys in front fairly well. Like that's the the problem with AJ is he's not really there. And there are only so many settings in which banging physically with a guy is, is really, really important. Um, If AJ ends up going in the top 10, he needs to buy a car for Mark Williams because that guy covered up so many mistakes that AJ made to make him look draftable enough Uh, to that level. Like we see quarterbacks who get their O linemen, these things all the time. Like AJ Griffin's got to do something for big Mark Williams there. Yeah. And AJ is a great shooter. Like genuinely, I think he's an elite shooter, which is why I think he should go somewhere, you know, 10 to 14, 11 to 14, maybe. Uh, Like genuinely, he is a potentially like 42% three-point shooter on volume at the NBA level. And that has value. As a six foot six guy, the 6'11 wingspan, like even if the defense never comes along, I'm willing to take that flyer like late in the lottery because the shooting is so strong that it's just worthwhile. Uh, And he's not necessarily always going to be a bad defender. Uh, Again, like Adam said, this is a guy that was athletic in high school. Like he had pop, he had lateral quickness and real vertical pop as well. Maybe the injury early in the season kind of sapped that a little bit. Maybe the, uh, you know, a couple of years off uh, kind of sapped things for him a little bit. And as he goes from being 18 years old, where he's still one of the youngest players in this draft class to 
22 years old, he regains some of that if he gets a free runway with injuries. We just don't know that yet. And that's what makes AJ Griffin so hard. And that's what makes the NBA draft process so fucking hard is that we have no idea if AJ Griffin can actually retain some of the athleticism that he has shown at previous levels, uh, but did not show this year at Duke. Yeah, no doubt about it. And, and again, I know Penny always likes to bring up, shout out Matt Penny, um, bring up the Bagwellian stance to the uh, oh the AJ Griffin God. jump shot. Like, I don't know. There's so many weird things going on with defense, with injuries, with the shooting form. It goes in at such an absurd rate, like the flashes of self-creation, but the fact that he gets very little lift on his jumper. It's yeah. almost too many things for me to wrap my head around and say, all right, I'm just going to buy in. Like, screw it. Let's go. Yeah. I tend to be a lot more measured and, and like we were talking about a little bit earlier, if you have one thing to make up for and change, that's okay. But as soon as those stack up and there's multiple, multiple reasons to be skeptical of a guy, that's when I start to talk myself out of it. So I'm a little more hands off with Griffin in the lottery, but again, understand the upside because of how athletic he was in high school and guys who shoot it that well with some self-creation upside are pretty rare to find outside the lottery. Yeah, they really are. And it's just such a tricky, like, again, like, I, I just can't emphasize enough. We have no idea how AJ Griffin is going to age. Like, we just have no idea how he's going to look when he goes from 18 to 22 years old. Uh, he could be, he could retain some of that crazy athleticism. He could be just who he is now. And that guy's probably not like a high level NBA player. It's probably like Aaron Naismith or something, right? Uh, it's... It, this is what makes this process so hard and why you're guaranteed to miss all the time uh, to bring it back to where we started here, Adam. Uh, you, you are guaranteed to miss when you're evaluating 18-year-olds that uh, have played very little basketball over the course of three years in the case of A.J. Griffin. Uh, Adam, tell the people where they can find you. Tell the people about your Substack because I forgot to lit, uh, yell that out at the top. So tell the people everything that's going on in your life. Well, Sam, first and foremost, thank you so much for having me again, checking off the first of three bucket list items here. <laughs> so this was great. Um, yeah, we have a lot of work on our Substack page, the box and one.substack.com. That's where we have a lot of our written scouting reports, as well as some philosophical think pieces around the draft. Uh, YouTube, Adam Spinella, the box and one all shows up in the same there. Find all of our scouting reports and videos. We go 10 to 15 minutes on most of the, the major prospects, as well as a couple mock drafts. And then Twitter is the, the main place to find all of our work at the box and one underscore uh, try to always have some fun prospect polls on Friday. So if you're new to our page, make sure you stick it out at least to the week and don't hit unfollow until Saturday morning because Friday tends to be a pretty fun interactive day. But uh, again, Sam, this was fantastic. Really glad to be here. Won't be the last time that you're on the show. I can guarantee that Adam uh, is the best folks. Please go follow his work, subscribe, do everything you can to support his work uh, because he does a really worthwhile thing for everyone involved in the process. This has been the game theory podcast. Please remember rate, review, subscribe, do everything you can to support the show. Uh, I will be, uh, doing a thing with John Hollinger for Monday on guys in the NBA draft combine winners and losers. We have a little bit more Intel than maybe we shared on this podcast uh, within that story. So please go subscribe. This is not just going to be a rehash of what Adam and I just talked about. There's going to be a lot more there uh, that John and I talked about. Uh, 
what else? What else? What else? I'm trying to think. I, I will be hard at work on the draft guide this week, so I can't really uh, can't really act like I have much else coming beyond that. But until next time, we will talk soon.